Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Contrast of styles over the weekend. You had President Trump uh, featured at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC. Mm Mm-hmm. You had uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, out in California giving a speech to a audience at the Ronald Reagan Library. So let's take them each in turn since those are the choices. I mean, yes, there's always the possibility that uh, a DeSantis will falter or maybe I don't even know what a faltering Trump looks like such that he would be sidelined in this race. I don't really see that happening, but. There's always a possibility that there's a third track for some other candidate to emerge. But right now, it's pretty clear that the choice is binary for Republican primary voters. And um, very interesting, the tack that Trump took to a hypercharged audience at CPAC. Now, this is base camp for him. This is conservative grassroots, not conservative donor class per se. And here's what he said to his faithful. And if you put me back in the White House... Their reign is over. Their reign will be over. And they know it. And America will be a free nation once again. We're not a free nation right now. We don't have free press. We don't have free anything. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. I love that line. Uh, and he uh, went on to uh, support that offering with this. You best stop shooting your mouth off, pal. <laughs> You're a dead man. Come on. Let's dance. <laughs> really? It's not justice I'm after. Let him come. And he's coming, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 646-36-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Did a pretty good uh, Stu Bennett there. Uh, Excuse me, Stu Barrett. uh, Stu Bennett, yeah, Stu Bennett, right. Yeah, Stu Bennett. Stu Bennett, the WWE guy that became the I Am Vengeance. Anyway, B-movies, not important. But uh, I Am Your Vengeance. You know, it's it's, uh, I Am Your Justice, I Am Your Vengeance. Uh, That's essentially the tack that, uh, he took, although he didn't give voice to it, but it's the line that I keep coming back to again and again because it doesn't lose its relevance, which is the Victor Davis Hansen line. All the, This is his summation of the Trump candidacy in 2016. All those people that you know in Hollywood and on Wall Street and in academia and in the press corps and in corporate America – I know them all, and they're even worse than you think, and I'm your representative against them. That was without making it 
pre without presenting it in those words. That was his value proposition in 2016. And as we uh, stand here on the cusp of eight years later, not much has changed. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. I am your warrior. I am your justice. I am your vengeance, your retribution. Is that uh, good enough to support Trump for re-election? I don't know. I thought Trump was was on message at CPAC. I watched his uh, speech, and I was pretty impressed. If he stays like that during the campaign, he has a good chance of winning, don't you think? He also uh, took the time to go where the other candidates won't at this point, including DeSantis, which is to say this is our party, saying to the grassroots, this is our party, and we're not going back to the party it was before I got here. When we started this journey, a journey like there has never been before, there's never been anything like this. We had a Republican Party that was ruled by freaks, neocons, globalists, open border zealots, and fools. But we are never going back to the party of Paul Ryan, Karl Rove, and Jeb Bush. Uh, and uh, he had a specific message for one Senate minority leader. Can you hear me now? We are never going to be a country ruled by entrenched political dynasties in both parties, rotten special interests, China-loving politicians, of which there are many. You listening to this, Mitch McConnell? Are you listening? You know, for, from Trump's perspective, you say, well, we need to have somebody who unites the party. You're not going to jettison sort of the Republican establishment. No, you're not going to jettison it, but you can tell the Republican establishment who is at the wheel. You know, you know who's leading the party that you're a part of. Uh, and that's the the distinction that Trump made is, look, I don't have to be. I never was. I don't have to be. I never will be beholden to these people. And he had, interestingly, the same message for speaking of freaks and uh, corrupt individuals, predators, all you Lincoln Project donors and Lincoln Project fans. What an embarrassment. Disgraced. Uh, I mean, disgusting. Jeff Weaver. What? Nobody wants to rally the fence of Jeff Weaver. Why not? And politically, the others were just as, as noxious as he was. But Trump had a message both for the Lincoln Project as well as for the Republican donor class more generally. Interesting. First, the Lincoln Project. Perverts who use the names of Washington and Lincoln to buy millions of dollars in ads to say bad, libelous and incorrect things about us. And then the donor class more generally. Our enemies are lunatics and maniacs. They cannot stand that they do not own me. I don't need them. I don't need anything about them. I don't need their money. They cannot steer me. They cannot shake me. And they will never, ever control me. And they will never, ever, therefore, control you. So what you heard from Trump at CPAC was one sort of populist appeal, and it's an appeal based on the cult of personality. I'm your representative. We know who our adversaries are, and I'm the guy who's going to take the bicycle chain to their playground on your behalf. 
That was one appeal, one sort of populist appeal, one type of populist appeal. Joe in Hoffman Estates on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, happy Monday. Um, I was wondering, I've, from what I heard, is Trump had about a half a room um, at the CPAC, and I was wondering if DeSantis made a political error because if he had even five more people, he probably would have came up in the polls and been more of a front runner. What's your opinion on that? Well, uh, thanks for the call, Joe. I don't think um, it, you know, the CPAC straw poll uh, doesn't mean that much, and it means less than it used to. I don't think it was necessary for uh, DeSantis to be there. Uh, I mean, Trump had the room. Right. He was going to have the room where DeSantis was there or not. And, and when whatever, Nikki Haley spoke, the room cleared out. <laughs> yeah, and the same with uh, Pompeo. I mean, yeah. it, there, there's nobody in that uh, at that conference that held a candle to Trump, and there wasn't going to be. So, no, I don't think so. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Dan and Amy, top of the morning, and we're talking about uh, Trump's remarks at CPAC going uh, right after the Republican establishment, those who have been... uh, on again, off again, allies like the Mitch McConnells and um, I mean, to the extent they were ever on again, the Paul Ryans and the Karl Roves and the Jeb Bushes and so forth, the political dynasties on both sides. He talked about the uh, uh, cleaning of the Agian stables that he essentially talked about when he announced that he is your warrior, he is your justice, he is your vengeance. One sort of populist appeal, really, around his personality. And, again, the thing that's complicated about Trump is not necessarily the man, but the record. He was able to get so much done. He was able to expose so much because of the reaction that he drew from the left. Very helpful. My favorite part was definitely when he said, I am your warrior, your justice, your vengeance. Because I'm feeling the vengeance right now. Well, it it was like the trailer from a— it was a trailer from a summer blockbuster. Yeah. And so it is sort of the um, the visceral. With Trump, you get the visceral. And this is why people are willing to go to war for him or with him. Yeah. I mean, life was good when he was our president. Gas prices were great. And nobody had heart palpitations going to the grocery store. There was a sense of freedom, even though COVID then hit toward the end. But 
You just felt like somebody had your back. With this administration, they don't care about us. But, of course, that's not the comparison. The comparison is between Trump and DeSantis as to who is best to take on this administration or whatever may come subsequent to it that is representative of it and be successful in 2024. So Ron DeSantis, Florida governor in California, talking to an audience assembled at the Reagan Library, a different sort of populist appeal uh, based on record to some extent. That's where they're similar. But his is no drama, and it is pointed, but I would say short of combative. And it's really driven by competence. So he spent a lot of time comparing and contrasting what's happened in Florida over the past four years as compared to blue states like California and New York and our very own. All the way until like the last four or five years, People beat a path to California. You didn't beat a path away from California. And yet now you see the state hemorrhaging population. I can tell you growing up in Florida, I never remember seeing a California license plate. Why would you? Why would you leave, right? And then all of a sudden over these last few years, we start to see Californians show up, these license plates. And I can tell you that spooked a lot of people in my state because they didn't know how those Californians were going to vote when they got to the state of Florida. But we saw that, and we've seen people move from the West Coast, not just California, but Oregon and, and Washington State in numbers like we've never seen. This is a result of better governance in states like Florida. It is a result of poor governance in these left-wing states. That's why people are moving... In case you're scoring at home, we would be one of those poor governing in a left-wing yes, state. Yes, yes. Yeah, Thank yeah, you we, very we would much. be in that category. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he spent a lot of time talking about schools, uh, both during the pandemic, who kept their schools open versus who didn't, as well as, of course, on curriculum issues, since he's been so front and center on that. That's a real value add for DeSantis politically, I think. Uh, here's a little riff he did on Florida versus California and our very own on 2021 and pandemic response. There was a survey. So as the COVID was going on, there would be surveys about what states had schools open in person. And sometimes it was by school district or city or whatnot. So nine months into COVID, 10 months into COVID, January, 2021, Burbio.com did the survey. State of Florida, 100% open in person. California and Illinois, less than 20% on their survey, open and in person for all students. I am sorry, that is a disgrace for this state and Illinois and other states that did it. And the consequences of that are going to live for a long, long time. Hmm. One more uh, riff from DeSantis, that is Reagan Library speech, before we get to some of your calls. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Trump or DeSantis, whose populist appeal do you like more? Do you think more has more sellability at the polls? And I mean, you know, in a general election. But, I mean, you're welcome to to opine on what you think the primary will bring as well. Uh, One more clip. This is an implicit contrast. And this is no great insight. It's going to be pretty obvious when you hear it. An implicit contrast between DeSantis and Trump and their styles. And uh, 
basically the argument would be their effectiveness and their electability. See what you think of this riff. A leader is not captive to polls. A leader will help shape and lead the public's opinion. If they see you put out a vision, if they see you execute on that vision and produce good results, the people will follow. And I made that bet that those 32,000 votes, if I was bold, I wouldn't get fewer votes. I'd end up expanding my base of support. But to do that, we understood that we had to have good personnel working in the administration. I laid down the law very clearly. If you have any other agenda but the best interests of the people of Florida and supporting what we were elected to do, pack your bags and leave because we're not going to tolerate that. And we had to do some stuff early on. But I can tell you in four years, uh, you didn't see our administration leaking like a sieve. You didn't see a lot of drama or palace intrigue. What you saw was surgical precision execution day after day after day. And because we did that, we beat the left day after day after day. All right. There's the offer. Yeah, there's maybe not a lot of daylight between the two policy wise, although there may be some. But uh, generally speaking, there there doesn't seem to be. And so here's the difference. No drama. Uh, effective management, quality personnel, execution, uh, big ideas, big bluster, big drama, and sometimes you move the flag and sometimes you don't. Right? I mean, that's essentially how DeSantis is framing it. Is he wrong? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turkey Dapro answer line, Mark Sasside. Good morning, Dan and Amy. I'm a Trump supporter, and I'll vote for him again. It sure seems like he's already formed a third party, and he's obviously he has to run as a Republican. But what I what's going to be interesting going forward, if you eliminate Trump, and he's not in, you know, running anymore, what do his core supporters like myself do? I don't think I think the Republican Party is in danger of of folding because a lot of us are not going to support. An establishment candidate going well, would you, forward. Would, well, would you support DeSantis? I would, but the jury's still out on him if he's really if he's establishment or not. It seems like some of the backing he's getting and the people behind it are surely establishment people. Well, that's probably but, that's yeah. That's there's no doubt truth to that. But but here's the thing: I mean, DeSantis isn't just somebody that was invented. He he's done things for four years. You just heard him describing the big bet that he made after he narrowly won in 2018. So look, I'm not people telling me, you know, this is a swing state. You got to be careful. Don't get too far out over your skis. Don't make any big, uh, bold moves. And he said, no, I'm going to. As he said in the speech, I, I may have gotten just barely over 50 percent of the vote, but I got 100 percent of the executive power and I'm going to use it to advance the conservative reform flag. And that's what he did, whether Jeb Bush supported him on this policy or he didn't. He did it. And so this like, you know, some people, they're shadowy figures in the back backing him. Right. But they weren't there to get him to this point for the most part. And to the extent they were. Uh, he's clearly, I think, demonstrated that he is uh, going to make decisions on what he thinks is best, consistent with his principles, regardless of who supports him or who doesn't. 
I, I, I said I would support him. Yeah. But I'm saying going going forward with the Republican Party, if you eliminate the Santas, I don't see the Trump people ever getting behind an establishment person going forward. Well, because yeah. Other I, than the everybody else's establishment, other than him. Thanks for the call, Mark. I, I don't know that Pompeo is, but um, but but I, I agree with you that I mean, this is why it's a binary choice is because and and why Trump is smart politically to use sort of the Paul Ryan's and the Jeb Bushes and the Carl Rove's as as whipping boys, because they don't have any constituency in the Republican Party or it's very small. Even Mitt Romney admitted that. Remember, you know, I represent a different wing of the party. It's a very small wing. Um, he's right about that. That's that's not where the center of gravity is in the party. And so that's why I say there's sort of two different populist appeals that are being presented, one by DeSantis that's more buttoned down and one by Trump that is, you know, classically Trump that is um, has more showmanship, shall we say. Um, And I don't see a lot of space for any sort of establishment candidate to shoot the gap between those two because they just represent such a large, to combine such a large supermajority of where the party's thinking is. Uh, Miro, Northwest Side. Did you say Miro? Myro, sorry. Yes. yes. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> At this time in America's history, we don't need a fighter. We need a killer. I listen to this program. I hear Maxine Waters. I hear Chuck Schumer. Uh, you can't fight these people. You have to be better than a fighter, and you have to be harder than they are. When this country comes back to being normal, the Democrat Party, not the Communist Party, not the Marxist Party, not the Socialist Party, when it becomes the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, fine. We'll vote for, we'll vote for a fighter like DeSantis, who I would vote for now if Trump wasn't fighting. But at this time, no, we need a killer. That's my comment. Thank you. Thanks, Myro. Mm-hmm. Ron, Southside. Hey, uh, good morning. Yeah, you need a killer, but you don't. You you don't need just a clown. Uh, and what I'm saying, um, uh, Dan and Amy, the, the, the name calling people are fools and freaks. It's not going to sell in the general election. So just let him go away and say that's just. And since he likes to use names, I mean, he, he uh, Trump. He's garbage. I don't support DeSantis. Trump is garbage. Okay, have a good but day. But he's not going away. Right, I mean, what is this? I want him to go away. It's not going to happen. No, he's not going away. And the away. big fear is that, yes, if he loses, then I'll create a third party, and then we'll, Biden will win easily. No, that's. I don't think that's going to happen either. Um, okay, good. But, um, but, yeah, he's not going away, and even were he to, to lose in the primary to DeSantis— um, and, and, you know, this third party gambit set aside. I mean, then is, does he main, stay a constructive force in the party in the short term, the 24 cycle and, you know, beyond that as well? I, it's it's difficult to say now. There's I mean, there's all sorts of other variables. We've talked about a couple of them at some length over the last several months. I mean, one of them is is whether or not Trump ends up uh substantively running against DeSantis or and he would have been smart to do this all along rather than 
sending uh, Beaumas, DeSantis, this way, or he runs against the the swamp, and he runs against the swamp while under indictment, whether it's the Department of Justice or the Fulton County State's Attorney in Georgia. If he gets to run against somebody like Merrick Garland or some jerkwater DA in Fulton County, Dem, then... Well, you can just set aside spending a lot of time on DeSantis. I'm the only guy who can stand up to this corrupt swamp that is no longer limited to D.C. And let me tell you something. You can they can send me away or the voters can send me away, but they're going to do the same thing to DeSantis or anybody else with an R next to their name, because that's who they are to the point that uh, Myro is making. And I'm the only one proven that I can punch back harder than they can punch and I can take their punches. That's a pretty good that's a pretty good offering if Trump were to sort of stand in the middle of the ring like that. That's gonna be pretty attractive. All the as DeSantis said, drama and palace intrigue notwithstanding. Uh a day in Chesterton, Indiana. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Okay. Um, I, uh, I I heard what DeSantis said, and and to be fair, I did vote for Trump, but I would probably vote for Trump again. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing that I heard DeSantis say is he had everybody on his team focused in the same direction, and I think that hands down the biggest mistake that Trump ever made was he had too many people working against what he was trying to do. He really would need to, if he gets reelected, he would really need to focus everybody and get rid of these, these fringe um, rhinos, you know, in his administration to really, you know, make the impact that he wants to. Uh, thanks for the call, Dave. I mean, I think that's a good point. And Trump has said it recently about sort of, you know, this is as close as you get to a what I've learned moment from Trump talking about uh the swamp in D.C. generally. Now, he didn't take specific ownership to, for, say, bringing uh, goofs like Michael Cohen, his fixer from New York City, into yeah. the orbit in D.C., which was a huge mistake. And there are many examples of that, of yes. course. But Clown this is the show. Right. Well, this is the contrast that DeSantis is presenting when he says you didn't see leaks. You didn't see palace intrigue. We put together people that we knew were going to add to the mission and we jettisoned people that weren't, and we implemented every day, and we defeated the left every day because you have to have a good executive there. You can't just be a big idea guy and give speeches and do rallies. You also have to have people around you that you can trust, that are flying in formation, that are talented, that will execute, that have specific skill sets to execute the program. And this is what DeSantis is essentially saying. This is what you get with me and what you don't get with Trump. That's what he's saying. Who is the more effective executive? If we believe the same things, then shouldn't it come down to who you believe would be most effective? And DeSantis is making a competency claim there, isn't he? Uh, Kip, Stillman Valley. Uh, Yeah, good morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, wherever this goes through the primaries, I hope all Republicans would hold the line and and stay together, not run away like a Kensinger and 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 etc. Trump 
I, I would favor because he would be a, a bull going through the china shop, and he knows where all the good china is. And if there was anything on the man that he did illegally, he would already be behind bars. DeSantis would be fresh father, and they're holding their powder and keeping their balls high to go after him because it'll be all, all new allegations. Because look what they did to Trump. If they can do it they, to Trump, they can do it to anyone. So have, you all have a good day. Thanks for the call. What about the generational change? If the Dems really do move forward with Biden, which I still can't believe they would. Uh, yeah. But um, then you've got a, an 80-year-old against a 45-year-old in DeSantis and the appetite for generational change against uh, the octogenarians of always, if you will. What about that appeal? It seems to me that's a plus in the DeSantis column as well. Marvin, Burlington, Wisconsin. Uh, good morning. I, I think... Uh... Not to be an apologist for Trump in any way, but uh, being a novice, uh, I think he had to fight. Well, I know he had to fight not just the Democrats, but entrenched Republicans. Uh, and there's a, a DeSantis. I don't think he's really had to do that. Also, there's a huge difference in, I believe, um, in the magnitude of um, scrutiny from news media and their agenda uh on a national level uh, versus a state level. No question. Uh, and, DeSant- and DeSantis will have to negotiate that as well. Yeah. Uh, I was Good a point. Trump voter. I was a Trump voter, but I, I, I believe that, uh, I, I believe that the anger from the last election and, and people seeing, feeling like they were, we've been cheated. Um, and, uh, that people out of vengeance will have more of a likelihood of voting for Trump. But I believe in a general election that I think DeSantis's style is more sellable to swing voters and independents. But uh, I, I think either way, either one, uh, I think we'll have much more talent on our side and much more uh, better decision making on our side. Uh, Trump knowing the, the, all the, where all the landmines are ahead of him and, and not, I don't think this time around we'll have any qualms about trying to get along with anybody. Thanks and, for the call, uh, Marvin. Appreciate it. Uh, John, McHenry County. Dan, you hit it on the head. At the end of this year, going into the primaries, Trump will be 77, DeSantis will be 45, and Biden will be 81. That's people want a generational change, and that is unspoken whisper of every voter in this country, both parties. Thanks for the call, John. I think that is a factor. There's no question. It's got to be. Come on. Uh, Elliot. He'll be 86 when he ends his term. Uh, Please. I can't believe he's going to make it. Elliot Southside. Oh, don't say it. Uh, good morning, Dan. Um, my comment, I guess a little frame from my background, kind of a, I used to be Democrat, kind of switched over to Republican throughout the course of the pandemic, really. Um, one thing you got to remember is um, – just DeSantis' leadership and his, his judgment during COVID and the policy that he uh, instated in Florida was phenomenal. Uh, Trump, I mean, he had a little bit of a pushback to the overall narrative, but, uh, I mean, he pushed Operation Warp Speed, which was a disaster. Um, that's one really sticky point for me. I mean, economically, things were yeah. great with Trump, but Thanks I think there's better leadership. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, Elliot. Thanks for the call. The COVID point is a good one, and I think... 
DeSantis's emphasis on that during the speech at the Reagan Library. That's going to be something where he compares and contrasts what he did during COVID to what uh, Trump does when we get into it. There's no question. And you should also mention that Gavin Newsom's in-laws, it was so bad in California that even they moved to Florida. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Yeah, Dan and Amy, top of the morning, this campus beat. We're talking about K-12 through campuses and school board elections April 4th. Yeah, I know, Paul Vallis versus Brandon Johnson, and we'll get to... We'll get to that. Plenty of discussion about the mayor's race over the next 30 days. What about your local school board races? How much discussion and consideration are you giving those contests? You should give a lot. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. From Staten Island, give me an example of what I'm talking about. Because, and we'll give you examples of what we're talking about here, too, because it exists here. It exists here. It probably exists in your school district. You just may not be aware of it, or the offending parties have not been exposed to this point. New York City is investigating widely circulated screenshots of texts purportedly written by the superintendent of the Staten Island schools. Let me give you an example of the text written by not a doctor, Marion Wilson. No more white principles on my watch. Another, I need to clean up this island. White folks need to recognize this is not the boys club anymore. A strong black woman runs this bitch now, <gasps> and they can either get out or they can either get on board or get out. If they don't get out, I'm going to take them out one by one. They're not going to know what hit them. Going to be fun. That's the superintendent of the schools in Staten Island. And making grammatical errors while doing it. Okay. Another one, whoever Chris is, Chris's white ass is G O N E, gone. It's happening. Can you uh-huh. imagine if it was the other way around? <laughs> uh, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. They're investigating as to whether this is her. Uh, right. Uh, I think it's her. Uh, right. That that's... She probably has a hate has no home sign, too, in her front yard. I'm sure they'll put the same people investigating the Supreme Court's leak of the Dobbs decision on this investigation. They're trying to buy time and create space to figure out what they're going to do about her. Or maybe this thing will just go away and they won't have to do anything. 
That's what they're actually doing. But if you think that kind of rhetoric, those kind of ideologues are just in charge of the Staten Island schools, this doesn't have any relevance for me in Chicago suburbs. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Well, um, I... some, some classic bites, just a couple, and okay. then we'll get to what uh, Jelly Belly had to say over the weekend. This is Naperville School District, the high school district. This is uh, during the pandemic, but, of course, the issues are not limited to the pandemic. There are also curriculum issues, issues specifically around uh, CRT, racist ideology, and gender ideology. This is Doug McGregor addressing the Naperville School Board, what's going on in Naperville. Have I made it clear this is Naperville? Not Staten Island, not some distant land. My name is Doug McGregor. I'm a parent and a taxpayer. In April 2019, District 203 began a series of three open forums for diversity and inclusion where we were introduced to Dr. Leakes. We are shown a series of slides by Superintendent Bridges and Assistant Superintendent Patrick Knowlton that showed the achievement gap between Asians, whites, Hispanics, and blacks. Across the nation, state, and here in Naperville, blacks were shown to be far behind. Every academic knows this, and it's been like this for decades. We were told the reason for hiring Dr. Leakes was to close that achievement gap. To be clear, the taxpayers of Naperville were told that hiring a director of diversity and inclusion was for the purpose of closing the achievement gap. We know there are other initiatives coming, but that was the thrust of that first forum. And according to all of you, the way to raise test scores for blacks is to force critical race theory down the throats of teachers, staff, students, and taxpayers. Critical race theory is pure Marxism. It separates human beings by race and teaches that all whites are oppressors and blacks are oppressed. It's blatant racism. Here's Ibram X. Kendi in his own words. The only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy for present discrimination is future discrimination. This is the filth the taxpayers of Naperville District 203 are paying Dr. Leakes $128,000 a year for. Critical race theory is against meritocracy, hard work, personal initiative. Critical race theory teaches that everything boils down to race and that whites have only benefited from a system of white supremacy, white privilege, and systemic racism. And it goes on from there, but you get the point of it. So better see some more Doug McGregor stepping up to the microphone in the next 30 days if you want to see at least some members of some of these school boards turned out and the direction of your local schools changed. What critical race theory? Governor Pritzker was on Face the Nation and said there's no critical race theory, but, you know, he used name-calling to explain why uh, he's weighing in on local schools. And uh, this should... Everybody should really be paying attention to this, especially, too, since on Friday he donated a half million dollars to school boards and library board candidates, Dan. Your office told told us you're very focused on school board races in Illinois to make sure extreme right-wing candidates aren't dominating them. Um, I'm wondering how strong the Republican ground operation is on things like school boards. Is, is parents' rights really something you think Democrats need to be concerned about on a national scale? Well, what Republicans are trying to do is, of course, ban books in libraries. They're trying to keep our schools from teaching black history. Uh, They make up things about CRT uh, in schools that just don't exist. 
And so they've got a lot of extreme right wing candidates, frankly, on the crazy end of things that are running. And we just want to make sure that people know who they are and know not to vote for them. Right. So that's the uh, that's what they do. This is nothing. This is nothing novel. This is what Randy Weingarten has been saying. And it's actually the most effective defense for the left against their uh, radicalism and against this racist ideology, this uh, destructive gender ideology. The best defense is to say it's not happening. Republicans are saying it's happening. It's not happening. Vote against Republicans. Well, to say they're they're not teaching black history, where? where? Like, show me proof. Don't make these, you know, declarative statements once again without any backbone, without any facts or any truth behind it. Yeah, but you're. you're but that's what he does. Well, that's what works. They're doing it because exhausting. it works, and it will continue to work until people say this is not going to work. Until they draw a line and defend it. Until they. Uh, continue to provide evidence, as so many parents have, continue to speak out, as a lot of parents have, but a lot more are required. And um, not just at school board meetings, but also within your circles of influence to push people who are contented. Don't have to investigate any further. This is something Republicans are for, so we have to be against. This is something Republicans are against, so we have to be for. I don't that is the the extent of the analysis. Actually, I just did a focus group about this very these very issues. Okay. And that's what comes back when you A/B test like uh something like what Doug McGregor said versus what a Randy Weingarten said or versus what a Kimberly Crenshaw uh said, the the sort of inventor of critical race theory by by title, uh, academic or an academic like Ta-Nehisi Coates. To A-B test, something like McGregor said, or or some other uh, fathers have said at, at board meetings uh, on the issue of critical race theory and critical theory generally, um, to what they're saying. And what works, what works for sort of the neutral to lean left is Republicans are for or against it, so you have to take the opposite view, which is what you're getting from Pritzker. Just uh, dismiss them. With a characterization, right-wing extremists, well, you know, like Paul Vallis does, just dismiss them and then say whatever they're saying, ignore because they're saying it. We don't have to address the underlying substance of what is or is not occurring. That's the way they do it. He's spending money on library board races? Why, why is this a surprise? Oh, my God. George Soros spends money on prosecutors. Mm-hmm. And and we wake up one day and we've got these decarceration, deprosecution prosecutors in big cities all over America. And we're like, what happened? Uh, the uh, left and teachers unions in particular dominate the school boards. And we wake up and say, well, well what's happening in our schools? What's happening in our libraries with the uh, pornographic offerings? How did that happen? Because you let it happen. We let it happen. That's how it happens. How can you be surprised that they would leave any organ of government and by extension control of you alone? Why would they? Why should they? The bigger question is, why do we? Why do we not pay attention? Why do we not engage in these races? Got some text message. You can't read. Kids can't write. 
at a proficient level, yet teaching CRT solves this? How? Yeah, that's all well and good. And so, I mean, these races, these school board races, Mm -hmm. $500,000 to the big deal. These are not money races. These are ground races. I mean, you can have very little money. You don't need, uh, yeah, some sending out some postcards and stuff. Helpful, sure. Yard signs, helpful. All the trappings of campaigns. But this is hand-to-hand combat in your community. It's a few hundred votes that normally separates the winners from the losers in a universe of a few thousand votes. So the idea that a motivated few can um, cannot overcome Pritzker's half a million dollars is folly. Of course you can. Of course you can. It's hand-to-hand combat where you live. It's conversations with your neighbors, you know, the, your uh, co-parishioners and so forth. Pritzker's not there. You are. And, and Algonquin, let me give you just another example, local. We, we highlighted this person who's the chairman of the school board in Algonquin, David Scarpino, during the pandemic when he was, you know, in the um, Eichmann isolation booth, the old board was behind this plexiglass screen separating himself from the audience. And I bet he had a mask and a shield on, too. And uh, a, a parent got up and said, about the masking policy, you know, my special needs kid is having problems. So let's start from the beginning of my story. Just a little background on my kids. My nine-year-old is currently has an IEP at HES. So he has struggled with school from day one. Now add these last two years and he has multiple grade levels behind. Can you blame him? I mean, he has a speech delay. How do you expect a child to learn a combined letter sound without seeing mouth movement? My seven-year-old, who is a very active little boy, and at two years ago, loves school. I mean, technically, he hasn't had only one good year at HES, but if you ask him, that was his best year ever. He thinks his teachers, he has a problem with wearing the mask, and he thinks his teachers don't like him, and he has a very hard time with the mask on. But now let's get down to the problems, as this district has created for my family. My nine-year-old has been in close contact three times this year. Three times. Every time this has happened, Instead of you guys actually giving me solid facts of what's happening about the quarantine effect or the amount of close contact that actually do get ill with COVID, you guys throw your legal counsel on me. The district gives me legal counsel and denies access to school and tells my son he has to quarantine for five to 10 days. Even healthy, no test to stay program is available either. So my healthy child has to stay home for five to 10 days, not, now losing valuable educational instruction and I have to miss work. I know, I know, you've heard it all, right? So let's get down to the nitty-gritty of what happened today. Today, February 8th, my son masked, but is still allowing kids to choose to be a part of the school. Our district today decided to segregate my child refusing a mask. Do you know what segregation is? Did you hear that word? Segregation. Let me go over the definition for you real quick. The action or state of setting someone or something apart from the other people or things being set apart. But the district decided to word it differently so it sounded better, called it an alternative setting. But let me tell you, it was clear cut today that you segregated my kids for refusing to wear masks, a piece of cloth the scientists are now telling us are void and don't work. Today went as far as denying my child 
recess time outside like the rest of his peers. My nine-year-old didn't receive any minutes from his IEP. Neither of my children re received any educational instruction today, denying them the basic rates of education. But this district promises that they will follow. Thank you very much. Our next speaker, number 12, Christina. Don't, don't, you're gonna be out of order. Uh, you're gonna be out of order, I'm warning. Uh, so, uh, oh, now, so dismissive. I mean, it makes me cringe before you hear the rest of what David Scarpino had to say. Yeah. Think about listening to that mother talking about her special needs kid and the hell that she's being put through and her kids being put through and what kind of response you would offer. This was just a year ago, last February. Got it. Felt like 10 years ago now. Here's the response. Here's the response that she got and the rest of the audience got from Scarpino. After saying, you know, she's out of order, your time's up. I, ju I just want to remind folks, I understand you're, you're performing for TV and everything. Ooh. I get that. But please, 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 I will, don't, I will find you out of order, sir. Sir, Call the that's FBI. it. Remove him. <gasps> Off with his head. Like, like such tyrants, such, I mean, such. I can't stand these people. I can't stand certain school board members. You're performing for TV. So the mom of the special needs kid whose IEP plan is not being abided by the school district came uh, to the school board meeting so she could perform for what some uh, local access channel that <laughs> broadcasts the school board meetings. This is the attitude. And if you don't hold, Scarpino, uh, unfortunately, is, uh, uh, is, is not up. Um, but he's not up this cycle. Yeah, but change the board around him. Let's there do that. There are three candidates uh, for Algonquin School Board. I met him when I spoke up at uh, Algonquin Lincoln Day Dinner a couple weeks back. Mm -hmm. um, these are good candidates that are working together. And again, you're talking about a few hundred votes that could change the composition of that board and put people like that school board chairman in his place. Chris in Evanston. Well, hey, you guys, thank you so much for talking about this. I, I was very privileged to work on about 17 different campaigns in Riverside in the 2000s, and, and we won 15 of them. So I just want to make two quick points. Number one is I completely agree with you, Dan. Um, everybody has to do everything all at once now. Everyone has to do everything all at once now. There's no more time. There is no delay. You've got to act when you find these people. And it relies on you starting by finding somebody who's running against them who's got a lick of common sense. Uh, that gets me to my second point. Pritzker and the liberals, or the leftists, I should say, the Marxists, the barbarians, as Dan says, seek to grab the center. They want to grab the center to make anybody who disagrees with them look like a lunatic. They're not at the center. And the only way to deny them the center is to tell people what they're actually doing. And applying that to the, to the school board case, people have got to get the clips of these events, of these speeches by these impassioned parents. These parents have been totally betrayed by the captured agency, which is their local school district. Get those clips circulating like crazy. That's one of the things that everyone can do all together all the time from now until Election Day. Th Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Keep it up. Thanks for the call, Chris. Tony Downers Grove. 
Hey, Dan. Um, I didn't pay much attention to this. Uh, well, I don't have any kids, but but it does interest me because Donald Grove is such a liberal crap hole. And, you know, Sean Caston's running for school board. What? Sean Caston's wife, you mean. Oh, it's his wife? But it his has, wife. We, that's yeah. it, but the signs say Sean Caston. When, when, the, when they're promoting it, it's Sean Caston for school board. Not Maybe Sean, Sean Caston Caston's doesn't wife. have a wife. Maybe he's like uh, <laughs> Anthony Perkins. He just puts a wig on, and well, it's just there's just one guy. I don't know. Possible. Yes. Well, uh, well, I find that interesting, though, that that's how they're promoting it, because that that's... No, the... oh, sure. Well, it's a brand in Downers Grove, isn't it? Sean Caston. Well, that's the problem. And yeah. they're going to push the agenda, and they're going to be like Pritzker. So I don't know. Well, they're probably really funded by Pritzker Thanks, for mailers, things like that. Well, that's well, that that's what they're doing, and you know, it's all one big gross uh, power grab to not just to ensure discipline in the schools, not just to advance the uh, the leftist agenda when it comes to curriculum and indoctrinate the kids. But also to cover their asses, to cover their their tracks when it came when it comes to what they wrought during the shutdowns. This that's why this election cycle in particular is so important. Because if there's not a reckoning now, there probably is not going to be one. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM five sixty The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to six four six three six to download the app today. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Interesting to note, uh, last year's unemployment numbers, and I know the unemployment rate uh, doesn't tell us a lot. It probably should largely be ignored, but it's still an apples-to-apples comparison when you're doing state-versus-state. So looking at the unemployment rates for calendar year 2022 nationally, state by state, it is worth noting that the states, the top 10 states with the lowest unemployment rate. Republican run? All Republican governors. Of course. The bottom 10 states with the highest unemployment rate? Democratic run states. Correct. With, With Illinois coming in at second worst in the nation ahead of only Nevada. But, of course, that second-highest unemployment rate in the nation earned Pritzker re-election because who cares? I guess you know what you say in these inflationary times is those Democrat governors with uh, presiding over higher unemployment rates, you know, they're inflation fighters like Jay Powell because they're kicking pe- getting people kicked out of work. Whereas these Republican governors, they're uh, – Inflationary. They're they're Weimar Republicans because their low unemployment rate means higher inflation. I guess if we're going to stay in this uh, phony but seemingly uh, brand new again Phillips curve mentality. Uh, for more on uh, that topic and others, please be joined by Jim Urio. He's a analyst for Fox Business and the proprietor of Brant's Restaurant in Palatine. Jim, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. So Republican governors are pursuing inflationary policies while Jay Powell and the Democrats are throwing people out of their jobs and trying to curb inflation, right? Well, so it's interesting is that I, I don't even think the debate here. I mean, one party is you know pro-business and provides incentives for business to expand through CapEx. The other is pro-regulation and keeps pointing fingers at business and telling us all how they're treating us so awfully 
proposing windfall taxes. Just the one thing that always steps, stands out in my mind is AOC in what, what's her district? New Jersey or New York? New Jersey, right? New York. So she, Bronx. when Amazon planned to come in there, just fought it tooth and nail. And someone called her out on it a couple of days ago again, and she still stands very proudly that she kept Amazon from opening branches there and you know providing jobs for the people. So I just there's this weird psychology going on where they they consider themselves the champions of the people and at the same time try to destroy all the jobs through you know regulation, punitive taxation, and you just look at food and energy industry. They're trying to drive those two out of business. They've said about the energy industry, you just they sold us to our face that they will be happy when they've driven it out of our country or out of the world, whatever. Yeah, I noticed, uh, speaking of uh, driving uh, uh, you know, food producers out of business, I uh, saw again the uh, tractors were out in full force in Brussels, mm-hmm. 5,000 tractors uh, besieging the EU in Brussels because the uh, uh, Flemish government's plan to cap nitrogen emissions will put them out of business. We've seen this play out in the Netherlands and elsewhere. Yes. So this is a story that I think people are sleeping on. And if you want to see how it plays out from start to finish, all you have to do is look at Sri Lanka. They went down this path about a year and a half ago, and it literally caused a a calamity. I mean, people died. There was famine. People uh, protested and revolted. And then they they switched back the policy and allowed them to use the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, whatever it is. But it was too late. There was already one year of crop that was completely gone. And it's going to take years and years. Now, so, so sitting on the sidelines and seeing that happen going, wow, I can't believe they were so stupid. Nobody else is going to follow that blueprint. Are they? Spoiler alert. First Canada, then Brussels. Uh, To me, it is absolutely mind boggling. And it keeps the, the question that I keep asking myself is run of the mill incompetence. Or is it nefarious? And it is getting harder and harder to make the incompetence article when every, uh, every vector points toward doing things that are destructive. Yeah, it is odd to outsource our energy policy to Swedish teenagers. That doesn't seem like the best play. <laughs> it does not seem like the best play. It didn't seem like the best play for Europe to outsource their energy to a, a country that they had a tenuous relationship with. There are so many things. That if you just look at and scratch your head and say, why are you doing this? It is going to come back and bite you. And that brings us back to the inflation discussion here, which was almost a full two years ago when inflation was obviously running somewhat hot in June of 2021, you know, above 5%. The housing market had gone parabolic in prices. And what did they do? They kept rates low and kept buying bonds. So I don't know what's going on or why. Could these people just be this level of dumb? I, I, I don't know. It's very confusing. Well, how long do you think we're going to have, a live, have to live like this? So this is, we're in kind of a bad spot right now. Is that, so think what's happening right now. They're using a tool, interest rate hikes, that it literally has probably about a nine-month uh, lag till it's efficacious. So we are currently right now seeing inflation come off, albeit slowly. But it probably has very little to do with the rate hikes that have been going on for the last year and more to do with a couple other things, supply chain healing a little bit, plus the fact that, you know, sticker shock. We always say high prices are a cure for high prices. At some point in time, people change their behavior, and that's probably what's bringing prices down now. As prices continue down and the economy starts to slow, that's when the rate hikes that they've already pushed into the pipeline are going to be felt. So it's kind of like a boxer who's already, you know, knocked out on his feet and we're getting a couple more punches into him as he's falling to the canvas. Um, that's what's going to happen probably in about two to three quarters, in my opinion. Uh, you mentioned uh, taxation, too. Um, I, I wanted to get some help on this. So uh, numbers just out that last year the top 1% paid uh, 
forty, a little over forty-two percent of total federal income taxes, despite only accounting for twenty-two percent of overall income. So that one percent at twenty-two percent of the nation's income and paid forty-two percent of the nation's income taxes, um, that apparently is not their fair share. What is the fair share for the one percent? <laughs> what can you give me it's a number? They tell us it is, Dan. Right. The fair yeah. share is not for mm-hmm. us. It's for them to determine. And I've been told by very reliable sources that the wealthy pay no taxes in this country. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> they literally yeah. they say that and they expect people to believe them. And the funny part is people do believe them. So then you just got to go back to the point that you get the, you get the government you deserve. If you're going to listen to them look at you and say that the top 1% is not paying taxes, the top 1, 10% is not paying taxes, it's, just, it's the most ludicrous thing on the planet. And, I, again, the taxation thing, is, you know, obviously the governments in our country are raising revenues like they never have before. I personally think that one of the reasons they sparked the inflation that they did intentionally, which, by the way, this is not, it's not debatable whether or not the inflation was intentional. They literally told us for 10 years that they needed inflation to support a heavily indebted economy. If you want to go into that, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, it's one right. of my favorite topics. But then, right. but then, you know, the taxation part of it to, to modify behaviors, like in Europe, they instituted windfall taxes, on energy companies. Energy companies, like one quarter later, decided they weren't going to be drilling and producing as much as a, as a response to those taxes. And now all of a sudden you have less of what you tax, which of course, you always have less of what you tax. If you want to tax hard work, you're going to get less hard work. So uh, again, they've gone off the uh, playbook and they're trying to invent something new. I, I wonder if they're just trying to break it all down to build it back up again, but that's what it seems like. Um, what, what's your read on China setting their economic growth target of around 5% G, uh, 5% growth in GDP this year? You know, that sounds like, oh, well, they expect it to be a good year. But no, when it, with China, we're used to sort of propaganda about their economic growth and you know, targets that they will not meet. So this seems to be very conservative. And so what does that say about where China stands and what uh, w- what we can look forward to the rest of this year with respect to the U.S. economy? Well, that's a, a, a astute observation, obviously, because they always um, exaggerate to the upside. And I guess every government politician does, but China specifically. And plus, it's very difficult to get the, um, the actual data out of China. But the one thing over the last couple, uh, week or so, crude demand, oil demand in China has picked up above expected. So I, I think that things are getting back on track. But to your point, for them to say they expect 5% GDP means they probably expect 1% GDP if you do kind of a, a thumbnail propaganda deflator. And what does that mean for us, uh, considering that you know we there's been some uh, movement of supply chains off out of mainland China to other Southeast Asian countries, to India, but there's still a lot of American presence there, and there's still a lot of asset managers that are putting people's money into Chinese assets, uh, Chinese communist-controlled assets, which is a whole topic of conversation for Mike Gallagher in the House Select Committee on the Communist Party there. But so, what, but what does that mean for America's economy if we're sort of trying to break down what's actually happening there? It's a big deal. Amy asked a couple of minutes ago, so what does it mean for us going forward? Well, if we're really going to be moving our supply chain and our production from China to India, we're, we're talking about 10 years before we start to feel the same sort of lifestyle that we had over the last 30. Where you know, Remember, when, when Reagan took office in 1980, a couple things had to happen to break that cost-push inflation cycle. And everyone knows about Paul Volcker raising rates. Everyone knows about Reagan deregulating and 
and lower taxes. But people don't really talk about is us kicking the door open to take advantage of lower cost labor in emerging markets. And that all works, you know, relatively well for 35, 40 years. And now all of a sudden it's hit the skid. So it's, it's going to be a big deal. And it is definitely inflationary. Remember, that's one of the reasons we we produced in China because of what we had to pay there compared to anywhere else. So, so a lot of big name economists are predicting that we are going to shift our supply chain from China to India. But then again, that doesn't happen overnight. That takes at least 10 years before we see see the fruits of that. I feel like I'm being I'm a, a downer this morning. I think it's a Monday morning thing. I'd like to apologize. I want to talk about something no, more, right. more fun going out. <laughs> well, okay. We're not um, in good economic times. I mean, it's, it is a downer. People are living paycheck to paycheck that never imagined that they would have to. And, and you know, Amy, what the funny part is that there's such a bifurcation in the economy, too. When you look at, like, the top, let's say, 30%, the people who, who were beneficiary of all those ridiculous wealth inequality-causing policies over the last three years, those people are fine. Those people are still spending money. Then all of a sudden, you look at the lower 40%, car delinquency uh, payments, credit card debt is up to $1 trillion, the most it's ever been, at the same time the personal savings rate is cratering. And there's this weird YOLO sort of mentality, like, yeah, I'll just, I'll just borrow. I want to live. If the rug is going to be pulled out from me under again, I'm going to live while I can live right now. And that that cannot end well. Uh, so this month, what are we expecting from the Fed? I, I know the, uh, the 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 line has moved from expecting a quarter point uh, interest rate increase to a half a point. So what is your uh, prediction about that and about, uh, you know, interest rate hikes going forward? Well, so we're certainly going to know a lot more after this week because Jay Powell speaks speak in front of the uh, Senate. And right now, it's the, the odds have flipped back a little bit. The futures market predicts a 70% chance of an only 25 basis point hike and, 50, oh, okay. and a 30% chance of 50. So it's flipped back on Friday. So the, the point there is I, I think he will go 25 because I do not think he wants to appear to be panicked. I, I, he likes to appear that he's in control. Plus, deep down, he knows that the rate hikes that he's already put into the pipeline are not even really being felt yet. So, yes, we have an inflationary problem right now that is getting better but it's not getting better at the rate that they want to. So he will keep raising rates, despite the fact that probably right now we're above what they like to call the neutral rate, which means the rate you know, of not for um, expansion or contraction. We're at a contractionary rate right now. And if we just let this go for a year, we'd probably get the destruction that they so desire. But they will most likely overdo it by raising rates in the short term. And I think that they will get up to a 4.5% terminal rate, meaning the the, when they finish raising Fed funds rate, and uh, I think it will cause a, a recession. So, so this is—they're going to boil the frog. They're going to—I mean—they're getting it to the same place, but they want to appear like uh, you know this is all going according to plan. Is essentially what you're I saying. I think I think there is no question they're going to boil the frog. I like that expression. I know I know what it means, even though I've never heard it before. They're going to overcook it. They either either the inflation data that we're looking at is backward looking or antiquated, or it's just a normal, you know, six months to one year lag time of rate hikes. But either way, they're, they're playing with the instrument that they're using to handle this is so imprecise. And it really, any rate hike right now would be effective in fighting inflation nine months from now. And we have no idea what even three months from now is, let alone nine months from now. Jim Murio, Fox business analyst, the proprietor of Brant's restaurant, best ribs in town and burgers. Uh, in Palatine. You. When are you guys going to come out this summer? We'll, you know, have, we it. we'll need, have an outing. You know, for we sure. need to do a live remote. If we're not somewhere. locked down. Yeah. yeah. We're not locked <laughs> down for climate change. Uh, Jim, Jim Uriel, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. See you guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.proanswer line. 
Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560 The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. People look back in culture today as opposed to the yesteryear and think about the great uh, comedic giants and say, would Mel Brooks have a career today? Richard Pryor, Red Fox, Eddie Murphy. No, no, and no. <laughs> and today, if you're big enough, if you came into this era big enough, then you can survive the way that Chappelle has, particularly if you're otherwise left enough. But the question is not thinking about them when they were at their apex. But the question is, would their career even have gotten a launch today? And forget going back 30, 40, 50 years. How about 10? How about Key and Peele? Now, uh, Jordan Peele has gone on to become a celebrated screenwriter and director but he was part of the sketch comedy show, Key and Peel, that was on Comedy Central. And like uh, Don Lemon a decade ago talking about uh, what's happening in the black neighborhood he lives in and his demands on the black community to clean their act up in terms of certain things he found culturally problematic. Don Lemon saying that a decade ago on CNN. Here's a sketch from the Key and Peel show from a decade ago as well. And think about this sketch and my question, would Key and Peele's career have been launched by that sketch comedy show today like it was a decade ago? Uh, So I brought you here to make sure that none of my material could be in any way misconstrued as sexist or racist or homophobic. Uh, So if you hear anything that could be in any way offensive to anyone, just raise your hand and, oh, I haven't really started yet. Uh, Did you find something offensive? The fact that you think I need a man's permission to raise my hand is insane. I can raise my hand whenever I want to raise my hand because I'm a free woman. So I should just raise my hand like this, like a big old black power fist, yeah, huh? Boss man, is that what you want from me? Is this what you wanted? A floppy gay hand just floating around in the air. Well, here you go. Here's my floppy gay hand at the end of my limp gay wrist. Happy? No, Jesus, no. Wow. What? Why not Mary know, or Rachel know, or Bathsheba know? Why does it have to be Jesus, a man? And are we talking about the Jesus that accepts everyone, or the Jesus who doesn't believe that people should be able to love who they love? Oh, maybe I should just break out in some gospel song, screaming and hollering and hooting. Oh, lordy, lordy. No, this isn't the speech yet. Can I just do the speech? Oh, you want this bitch to shut up? Is that it? What's the matter? The black guy's making way too much noise in your movie theater, Massa? Forgive me for lisping and lilting through your speech. No, I just meant... What's with the hands, man? I ain't gonna shoot you. Are you gonna grab my breasts now? Protect yourself from the gay invasion. Guys! Guys, should I leave? Sorry, men and women. Let's exclude everybody who identifies themselves as something else because they're not people. I meant people. Whose people? My people? Do I speak for my people? All right. More like all whites. More like no rights. More like women are second-class citizens, right? 
Sound like a corporate Ooh. die session you've been to lately? Because that was essentially the, the setup, you know, a CEO or an executive getting the gay guy, the black guy, the woman in to say anything I'm about to say is offensive. It's the sketch. And now all parody, uh, parody of the identitarian left has come true. And so parody of the identitarian left is cancelable. 312-642-5600, turnkey DAPRO answer line. 64636DA, turnkey DAPRO text line. Key and Peel have a career today? No. Remember, these are two black gentlemen, and right, I, I, I don't, I don't know what their politics are exactly. I, I assume because they're Hollywood that it's left of center, and because they still work that it's left of center. I mean, they're talented guys, but um, you and have they to... haven't been canceled for anything that they did in their past. No, not yet, not yet. I, I don't know. Maybe they haven't. Maybe again, Jordan Peele is successful enough that he's untouchable now. And um, I, but but I mean, there's certainly if they, maybe that they nobody's been digging up their tweets lately. But that can happen at any time. Just ask Kevin Hart, right? You're not absolved, uh, or you're not uh, prevented from being a target just because you're black in Hollywood. If you this this is I'm trying to pound this in all the time. That this is about thought and speech crimes. And uh, you get too far afield and you don't have enough sort of standing built up with the identitarian mobs, then you're not invulnerable. I mean, think about the left today and their addiction to the power to cancel. And the power to occupy. Some might make it their life's mission. Well, that's the only thing. It's the only thing. And that's why I'm never going to say the words of the people that are trying to cancel us. <laughs> um, so Tucker Carlson was what? Well, say no, that. there's I mean, there's a certain woman out there who is filed, said that we were inciting violence against children uh-huh. here at WIND when we were just simply talking about the drag queen bingo hour at the Downers Grove Library. What does and that the mean? OIG reports, well, that, that, that means that the Title IX and the OIG for CPS listened to 19 hours of our show and concluded we did not incite violence against children because we would never incite violence against children. And just talking about it isn't inciting violence against anybody. What, 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 what are the words we can't say? Or the I, words you won't say? What, I don't know what that means. No, no, I meant that they, they, the left is so hell-bent on canceling people who don't agree with them that they will make up stuff. Just to try and get us canceled is what I'm saying. Well, sure, of course. And, that, well, well, and that's why they, I'm not saying the person's name because they want oh, us the to say their name. name. Oh, yeah, the person. That's what I'm, they want us to say. Well, right. But I'm not but doing I mean, it. Yeah, but that's the, the, the whole right. The well, whole point kids is. Kids were getting is, molested, Dan, and raped, and they were listening to our show. Who was listening to our show? CPS investigators, because somebody called and said that we are instigating violence against kids. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. So of course they did. Of of course they did. Stupidity. Right. Speech they disagree with is violence. Yep. I mean that's their position. So of course they did. Uh, This this is a humorless totalitarian bunch that you're dealing with, and. Again, I, I just don't know if that has penetrated 
people to the extent the evidence warrants. And I don't know if people have considered what the appropriate response is to someone like you're describing. Because, hey, and the reason on. I say that is because I, I, because what I see mainly is a response that feeds those humorless identitarian mobsters, not a response that puts them in, properly in their place. Well, you're better than me. I just ignore them, and I. But I live in fear. I mean, every day I'm worried about something, somebody making an allegation. The problem is you can't ignore them in most of the places that people live because they have control of most of the places that you spend your life. Exactly. K through 12, college campuses, arts and entertainment, Fortune 1000 companies, uh, local libraries. So you can say that. I'm just going to ignore them. But that's not a rational response because you're not going to be able to unless you want to live a hermetic lifestyle. So now if that's not available realistically, then what do you do? George in Naperville. Uh, Dan, we need to laugh at ourselves in society. I think that's healthy. And I always think of that sketch on Saturday Night Live when there was one black person on the bus surrounded by white people and everybody was stiff in their seat. And then when the black man got off, everybody starts partying. They break open champagne and it's a good time. And that was the Eddie Murphy way to make fun. The Eddie Murphy skit. That's correct. Yeah, it was the best. That, that was one. that was great. Eddie Murphy dresses up like a white man. It was it was the precursor of that skit. The Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, his day as a white man skit was a precursor to like the Chappelle shows Black Klansman when Dave Chappelle did the uh, Black Blind oh. Klansman sketch. Oh my god! That I mean, it's so ge- it's genius, and absolutely we should <laughs> laugh at ourselves. And you can ridicule us all day long, fine. But I. I, I the, the the humorlessness of the left doesn't end with humorous humorlessness is the point here. And, and again, I'm I'm sure people there are people listening who've been through a die training session at their job. And I'm sure that parody that Key and Peel did a decade ago rings more true today than it ever did. And yet the response is to pretend like you can ignore it. Vincent St. Charles. Uh, good morning, guys. Yeah, and Dan, to answer your question, no, they probably wouldn't be allowed to do what they just did. That skit was great. And and I think of Don Rinkles, more or less the king of all I grew up. I know it's going back a little bit, but how I hate to even say this word, how free we were to listen to this stuff and how great it was. And everybody laughed at it and had a good time. And it's just horrible now what they're doing. I mean, it's just, I can't even believe it. And it's just, it's, times are changing like this. It really is unbelievable to me. Thanks for the confidence. I mean, think about uh, what the left does when power is on the line. And power is always on the line because that's the prism through which they've been trained to look at human existence. I mean, Tucker Carlson had a great riff. This isn't uh, specifically 
race-related, but it's specifically left-related. He had a great riff the other day talking about John Fetterman. <laughs> oh. And, 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 and also talking about, uh, I mean, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania voters. It wasn't just Fetterman. He reminds us that uh, Tony DeLuca is a state legislator who died a month before the election, so people knew he was dead, and he overwhelmingly won re-election, like 80% of the vote. Oh, that's right. And the Democrat Party in Pennsylvania's response was, what a great tribute to Tony DeLuca to re-elect him posthumously, <laughs> even though um, I thought the point of electing people to office mm -hmm. was to represent your interests in office, and Tony DeLuca was no longer able to do that because he had passed his eternal reward, but it doesn't matter. Uh. And John Fetterman, John Fetterman, and this is the jumping off point for Tucker here, John, John Fetterman is in a psych ward right now. Right. They made him do it. They drove him to this point. Well, wait a second. He's in a psych ward, but he's also co-sponsor of legislation. Yeah. Specific legislation to a specific recent disaster. Take a listen. And just to show how completely normal it is for newly elected U.S. senators to have mental breakdowns and disappear from public view, that's such not a big deal that Fetterman somehow just co-sponsored legislation in the U.S. Senate. Quote, U.S. Senators Bob Casey and John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, reads a straight-faced news report, joined a bipartisan group of senators on Wednesday introducing new legislation aimed at preventing future freight train derailments like the one last month in East Palestine, Ohio. So here you have a guy who's getting round-the-clock psychiatric care deciding how to prevent train derailments. There's so many questions here. But the most obvious one is a logistical question. How is John Fetterman doing this if he's in the psych ward? And we don't know because no one will say. I mean, it, we're all uh, we're all in the uh, the ward, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest now. And John Fetterman's chief of staff, his tweets, by the way, are coming back to haunt him. He tweeted when, when talking about President Trump at the time: "This man is not mentally fit to be POTUS. People are suffering. It's past time we had an honest conversation about Trump's mental unfitness." Well, uh, tweet again, after tweet about that about you know this should not be shit taboo to talk about. But well, it doesn't apply to his candidate. Well, good. That's because John Fetterman's still busy at work sponsoring legislation to address train derailments. Hey. I mean, smoke. <laughs> talk about theater. It, so now parody is is not recognized as parody. It's just taken as normal, e even when you know parodies come true. Uh, Tucker mentioned where you know where this could go. Heaven forbid. Biden, of course, will celebrate this as a new glass ceiling shattered, as if we're all empowered by being governed by people who can't think straight. But this is a dead end, this road. This way of thinking is destructive for everyone. It's not empowering, it's grotesque. And if we continue, we might wind up with people dressed in admiral's outfits pretending to be women. That could happen. <laughs> I am honored to serve as the first female four-star officer of the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps. <laughs> now, that person is obviously mentally ill, but so are the rest of us if we accept it as normal. Greg in LaGrange. Hi, good morning. Uh, I think your point's spot on. If you go back and read something like Lincoln's Cooper Jr. speech, mm. he lays out three different parts of it, and one of the parts is it doesn't matter if you give in to the South at this point because 
they will always push for more. There is a point where you have to have some backbone. The reality is, I saw this on the web somewhere one time, so I can't take credit for it, but when the truth becomes a matter of perception, facts have to become flexible. And you're living in the world that Solzhenitsyn so properly defined. They know they're lying. We know they're lying. They know we know they're lying, yet they still lie. You need to fight back, and you need to push back at every level. And until our side of the political spectrum gets that idea and embraces it, we will continue to lose the battles. We cannot continue to live in fear. Thanks for the call, Greg. I mean, again, that that line from that movie I mentioned a few weeks ago, Speak No Evil, um, that the, the, the victim of these barbarians says... Why are you doing this to me? And the response is, because you let me. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM 560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, our faith and family values, the foundation of our democracy, are under attack. Now more than ever, it's time to rise and take a stand, which is why you're invited to the Black Conservative Summit that's happening March 24th and 25th here in Chicagoland, featuring Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, Larry Elder, Dr. Bodie Bauckham, and many more as they discuss how to fix America. Don't miss this impactful convergence of leading voices and the conservative movement. Again, it's March 24th and 25th at the Tinley Park Convention Center. Everyone is welcome, regardless of ethnicity. Of so course. I can go? It's conservative, so everyone's welcome. We don't do segregation. No, we don't. The seating is limited. Register today at blackconservativesummit.net. That's blackconservativesummit.net. Speaking of um, uh, black uh, political power, uh, Mary Mitchell over at the uh, NPR Times has this borderline incoherent column uh, making the case that Lori Lightfoot was owed a second term. But uh, I'm not really interested in her protestations in that direction. One thing that she said, though, maybe has some merit. With five black males, one white male, one Latino male, and another black woman trying to unseat Lightfoot, it's clear the progress that brought together a coalition to elect Harold Washington as the city's first black mayor in 1983 has been abandoned. Instead of seeing a renewal of black political power in the halls of city government, we witnessed the renewal of fractured black politics. Of course, Mary Mitchell never really asked herself the question, well, golly, you had a black female elected mayor, and why was she unable to put together the coalition even just within black office holders that Harold Washington was able to such that she didn't face six black candidates running against her in the primary. Isn't that a indictment of Lori Lightfoot's tenure? But Mary Mitchell doesn't contemplate that. Normally you can control that, right? I mean, if you're the mayor and you're in power, you can try and say who can and can't run against you, but that's well, well, it's not about saying who can and can't. It's about, it's about building alliances such that they wouldn't. Right. Say since since we don't really have that much uh, that separates us on policy, 
let's get along so that we can advance the policy collectively and, unfortunately, in the race identity a nomenclature of the left maintain black power in the city of Chicago on the fifth floor. Shared power maintains black power, builds a coalition such that she would be a favorite going into her reelection as opposed to the underdog she was. But of course, Lightfoot didn't see that and neither does Mary Mitchell. So the question remains, though, if Mitchell's assessment is right, uh, the renewal of fractured black politics, her phrase, in the city. Does that provide the opportunity to usher in a Paul Vallis the way that after Harold Washington, the opportunity was present to usher in a Richie Daly? 312 is our turnkey.pro answer line. You can always reach us on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. And for those who are persuaded because they want to be by that analogy uh, consider where chicago is you know nearly four decades you know ne- ne- nearly four decades 35 years after harold washington it's not the same city so i don't think those thinking that the, you know those dynamics the council wars of the 80s that ushered in a daily and so on and so forth, and the, the the racial politics that you can just cut and paste what was going on in the 80s to what's going on in the 2020s in Chicago. It's a much different city. It's a much smaller city. The racial composition of the city is different, smaller white population. And, of course, the politics is different because it's been so amped up on identitarianism. Well, I wanted to ask you, what did you make of Alterman, or excuse me, Alderman Walter Burnett's endorsement. He came forward, and he was—he's a longtime ally, ally of Mayor Lightfoot. I mean, he campaigned with her up until Election Day, you know, asking Chicagoans to give her a chance to finish what she started. And now he's backing Vallis. Yeah, so, gonna... so, so is his political mentor Jesse yeah. White and Gary Chico, whatever about Gary. But I just Walter, I think that that is a game changer for some reason to try and get the black vote out. To vote for Vallis because half of Chicago voters didn't choose Brandon Johnson or Paul Vallis. So they're going to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And Brandon Johnson was not even in Chicago this weekend. He was in Montgomery, Alabama and Selma. You know, he was with Maxine Waters, Sheila Jackson Lee, the, Rev, uh, the um, Reverend Jackson and his son walking across the bridge, you know, taking it to a national level, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, well, it, do you think that that's the play for Vallis to win the identitarian game and so the the endorsement game is sort of a proxy for the identitarian game? As I said last week with the Jesse White endorsement, that's nice. So you have some surrogates when you're inevitably called a racist that can come out and say, "Paul, I know Paul Vallis, he's not a racist. But is that is that the path to victory, do you think, for Paul Vallis, the identitarian game and winning the endorsements. The flip side is uh, Brandon Johnson is getting the awfuls, angry white leftist females, Kelly Cassidy, state rep, endorsing him. Uh, Maggie no, O'Keefe from the 40th Ward endorsing him. Alderman Andre Vasquez, 40th Ward, endorsing him. Danny that. Davis will endorse him today. So what does that mean if you want to win the identitarian endorsement game? What does that say to the as to the value of that game? 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Uh, Michael Saside. Um, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, let's be honest. Mary Mitchell is an idiot and a race mm-hmm. pimp. Well, uh, I okay. mean, yeah, sorry. I mean, I'm, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, thanks for the call, uh, Michael. I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, Mary, Mary Mitchell is a race hustler. Yeah, that she is. No, no, there's no question about it. She's an identity. She doesn't think she's a race hustler. No. <laughs> well, really? I'm just letting you know. Yeah, well, that's very, yes, very helpful. Yeah, I understand that a lot of people would not use the labels on them that I put on them based mm-hmm. on their behavior, but. That's what her behavior warrants. By the way, her column today is a case study in identitarianism, both race and gender identitarianism. As is all of her columns, as are all of her columns for I don't, the last however long she's been writing for the now NPR Times. Forever, decades. Yeah. So, um, so where where does where does she go? She ballast voter, and she she represents a certain point of view, a certain mindset. So what do you think? You think uh, Walter Burnett uh, versus Danny Davis, we're going to make assessments about which black politician uh, brings incrementally more votes to the table, and that's the way this is going to be uh, sussed out, is piecemealing together endorsements from black and white and Latino politicians and union organizations and so forth, and that's who's going to decide who wins? Is that what people think? Well, it certainly would help. I think Brandon Johnson's going to get Chewy Garcia's support, and that's going to help with the labor unions that he had, you know, on his side. Because Danny Davis was for him, too. He's campaigning with him, and Jan Schakowsky was, and yada, yada. They all broke up and were supporting different candidates. But I just so, need to know what Paul Vallis needs to do to get over the top, Dan, because this hmm. is a, some pretty scary times. Do you think Paul Vallis is the favorite in the race? I think it's no. I think Brandon. John, I mean, Brandon Johnson is more charismatic. He's younger. He's he's good. He's good at his job. But I don't agree with one single thing that he says. Not one. Do you think the uh, the the political landscape in Chicago, setting aside the quality of the candidates for okay. a moment, the political landscape and the political culture in Chicago, do you think that sets up nicely for a Paul Vallis victory? Or is Paul Vallis the underdog in the race? And okay. and 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 you know whatever position you take, why three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Depro answer line six four six three sixty eight Turnkey Depro. I think people line. are sick of the violence and sick of the lack of police protection. You know what? Why are we paying property taxes for what exactly? And I think with the officer um, uh, being assassinated, killed this past week, it really is. You know, and one's enough enough because I think that's the final straw. And I think people are going to start waking up. And if you want law and order, you'll vote for Paul Vallis. If you want social workers going to, uh, you know, mental health matters, they say, such as domestics, because that's where they're going to go, then vote for Brandon Johnson. If you want more of the same, it's Brandon Johnson. Kevin, Austin, Texas. Perhaps Chicagoans just want competent leadership. Perhaps Lori Lightfoot wasn't able to do that. I mean, if you look back, what was it, Belandic who lost because he couldn't uh, shovel the snow? I don't know about snow. Snow? <laughs> I Remember mean, his somebody I mean, said, what... snow, what snow? I don't see any snow. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was so long ago, but I think that's what people want. But when you got people running on ideology and people voting for people on ideology, if you look at a map in Highland Park, 
I mean, they all voted for Brandon Johnson. So it's, I mean, what deals are ma- being made right now? Is Chewy Garcia going to get a deal? Is Lori Lightfoot, who worked for Mayor Brown and Platt, going to get a deal to back uh, Vallis? There's a lot I'm of horse trading those. going on right now. Yeah. So I hope I hope you know. Uh, so Kevin, thing. you're you're so you're you're you you're a transplant. I know, formerly of Illinois, yeah. and you follow this stuff closely, based on right. uh, the calls and the conversations we've had. So what yeah. do you think that what do you think the the messaging? What do you think of the messaging of the two candidates? What do you think in terms of how the choice is being framed? Do you think that's advantage, Vallis? I think it's advantage, Vallis, as far as what gets done. But who's going to get? I mean. And then it's a ballast. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a, ba- a battle against Ballas in the police union or uh, Johnson and the teachers union. But you got a lot of people in part of the uh, teachers union who are not happy about it. About the what was it, four hundred and something thousand dollars that were donated to his campaign? Well, they didn't vote and on it. Normally, it they vote. Right. Yeah. So it's. It, I think it comes back to traditional politics. Who's going to get the army out to get the votes out? The vote was a very low turnout anyhow. Mm-hmm. I think people, you know, just what I look at and, and fa- family and friends that I still have up there are just, they're tired of politics. And on they're the, on the, Lurie's gone, but now yeah. he's going to come out. And, and the, uh, and the, if you think it's a boots on the ground game, then whose advantage, uh, who has the advantage there, do you think? I, I don't know. I'm not close enough to know that, but mm-hmm. I know that enough people were unhappy uh, with Lori Lightfoot. Right, but well, now is you know right. are they going to go to the next shiny object, Brandon Johnson? Thanks I don't for know. Call, I mean, I mean, his campaign commercials that are airing all the time at nauseum. Even you know, I will hire more social workers and mental health professionals to deal with things on the streets, so police so police can be free to do their job. Oh, really? What does that look like? I can't envision that type of Chicago. I think that that's a disaster of a plan. Jim and Lyle. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Uh, it really doesn't matter what we think how this is set up. Kind of take our cues from the National Democrats right from the top with Biden, who double-crossed the Senate Democrats over the, like on Friday, late Friday, in the revisions to the D.C. criminal code and leading to statehood in their mind. So I think um, they are freaking out that life was lost, and I think with good reason. I think there's enough level-headed Chicagoans who have had enough. Thanks for the call, Jim. Are they freaking out? That's not the sense I get, but okay. Mike, Northwest Indiana. I'm really hoping and praying uh, Mr. Vallis gets in, but I don't think Chicago's hit the critical mass yet where enough people have been impacted by all these tragedies and crime and everything else going along. Rusty. Uh Uh-oh. Rusty doesn't like it. Unfortunately, yeah. Chicago uh, politics. He doesn't like it. Stop talking about Chicago politics, he says. Give me a treat. <laughs> Thanks for the call, That was Mike. adorable. Um, oh, I love Rusty the doggie. Yeah. He's saying, I like Paul Vallis, I think, because I can translate dog, and that's what he was saying. Well, Mike from Northwest Indiana, the human, um, in the, on the call, was saying <laughs> yes. that, yes, he, he's, uh, he's in the same, same perspective from the outside looking in, but he also said he thinks... More of the same is coming, which would, of course, be let's go, Brandon. Hmm. I guess we'll watch how this plays out a little bit more, see if anybody has uh, uh, any assessment on 
how the race is going and where they think the balance of power lies and what Paul Vallis needs to do to win. If, if Maybe he doesn't need to do anything. He just needs to play the conventional game of endorsements and um, and uh, vanilla messaging on the issues of the day. Just stick to law and order and just repeat law and order as many times as he can between now and April 4th. And because he's in the driver's seat, that's enough to win. Well, they're going to have a debate Wednesday night on NBC5, and I'm looking very much forward to that debate. Mm-hmm. I'll be taking copious notes, Dan. <laughs> Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. In his speech at the Reagan Library over the weekend, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis addressed a number of topics, including the no-cash-bail movement in big blue city and state America, driven by decarceration, deprosecution or non-prosecution, mayors, governors, and of course, Soros-funded prosecutors. Uh, He uh, had uh, this to say. Now, remember, DeSantis is somebody who removed a prosecutor because the governor of Florida has the power to do so, who said he wouldn't enforce certain laws that were duly passed by the legislature there and signed by Ron DeSantis. So, okay, well, you're not going to enforce the law, then you're not going to be a prosecutor. Bye-bye. More from DeSantis on the topic. We also reject some of the terrible legislative reforms that have been enacted in various states across this country. Some have released violent people from prison prematurely. Others have done things like New York abolish cash bail. So you'll have a police officer risk their lives to apprehend somebody, bring them in, the judge releases them, and then two weeks later, that person's committed another offense, and the cop's got to risk his life again to apprehend the same person that should have never been on the street to begin with. You have seen that experiment and abolishing cash bail fail throughout this country, and in Florida, we're not tolerating it and not going to allow it to happen. And, of course, an analog to what he just said there about uh, domestic crime is the border. What are we doing at the border? uh, Re-encountering the same people that were deported to the extent that people actually get deported anymore. I know that's not the posture of the left to deport people, um, but it's the same whack-a-mole situation at the border as it is in these big cities around America, isn't it? Well, maybe uh, the scourge of fentanyl is a way to backdoor a renewal of at least uh, some predators being removed from the streets for extended periods of time and being subject to bail. In fact, since DeSantis mentioned it, in New York, the Suffolk County District Attorney, that would be Long Island, his name is Ray Tierney, he's calling on the governor there to make more drug offenses eligible for bail as a way to keep fentanyl dealers behind bars. Under New York's no-cash-bail law, only Class A felony drug offenses are eligible for bail. And Tierney told the New York Post, 
Our criminal justice laws don't focus enough on crime victims and the safety of community. Yeah, we know that all too well in Chicago, and our uh, no-cash bail law is even worse. By the way, uh, that decision on the constitutionality of the Safety Act in Illinois is expected this month, so we'll be watching for that. A tyranny, the Suffolk County District Attorney, also is requesting that Albany pass a death-by-dealer law to put fentanyl peddlers in prison for longer periods of time. Good. Yeah. Is there somebody's doing something? Well, right. And is is there an analog? Is maybe is is this a backdoor way to get at least some sort of enhanced border security, as well as domestic security in big cities that have lost their minds with these no cash bail laws, this turnstile justice in their court systems? For more on the topic. We're pleased to be joined by Tom Homan, former acting director of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So what about that? Um, is uh, Ray Tierney, the Suffolk County DA, is he onto something there? Maybe uh, the, the, the political climate doesn't allow for us to overturn in New York, for example, the law that was passed in 2019, but maybe we can make some amendments that focus on uh, fentanyl dealers and their cartel suppliers specifically as a way to improve the situation both at the border and in New York City and Chicago and elsewhere? Well, absolutely. Look, fentanyl is, you know, fentanyl is a major killer of a young Americans between the 18, number one killer between the age of 18 and 45. 106,000 overdose last year, most of those fentanyl overdose. And I've said it many, many times, this What's going on at Southwest border, it's, it's, it's beyond an immigration issue now. So I don't care what anybody's opinion is on illegal immigration. But when you cause a crisis this big, when you open the border up and cause a crisis this big, we got, you know, over 5 million encounters on the Southwest border in two years. It overwhelms the border patrol. When you overwhelm the border patrol, most sectors on the Southwest border, 70 to 80% of the agents are pulled off the line to process these large groups. And when they do that, it creates gaps in the system. So, you know, there's, there's, there's hundreds of miles of border unguarded when they're dealing with these large groups. And that's when the fentanyl comes across. That's when, you know, that's when the uh, sex trafficking went into children. That's when the 1.2 million gotaways come across. People don't want to kill themselves in. So uh, fentanyl should be a priority for every uh, jurisdiction, state, county, in the federal and in the border, the DEA is already on a one on record saying 95% of the fentanyl comes across the southwest border. So an open border is, is bigger than immigration now. It's about, it's about record number of, of Americans dying. Uh, last week, uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he called on the federal government to treat the Mexican drug cartels more like ISIS and less like the mafia, and, and then specifically then called not he didn't get into too many specifics, but essentially called for a military response and a drug interdiction response inside Mexico that needs to whatever we're doing now needs to be significantly enhanced according to Barr. What's your uh reaction to that? Hundred percent in agreement with him. The Mexican cartels in Mexico have killed far more people than any terrorist group in, in, in the world. And like I said, in the last two years, we're closing in on what two hundred thousand overdose. So yeah, it's just they should be treated as a terrorist organization. That way, they bring all 
all forms of uh, response to them, military, law enforcement, intelligence. Now, do I think our military should go down there and get involved? What I think we should do is force Mexico. Mexico's not going to take action. We know that. They failed to take action for decades. Uh, much of the Mexican government, military and law enforcement, are corrupt. I'm not saying everybody is, but there's it, it, a lot of corruption in Mexico. So uh, Mexico needs to let the United States intelligence uh, agencies and our special operations let us attack the cartels. We know how to we know how to chase the money. We know how to find the money. Because we take the money, we shut down the organization. Let us prosecute them in the United States, not Mexico. We've done it before with with, my, uh, with cartel bosses. Let the U.S. take the lead on this, and we can certainly put huge debt in our operations. Uh, since you're you know you since you have these relationships as forming acting ICE director, what is your description of the situation from the Border Patrol's perspective, from the law enforcement perspective. Uh, what is the situation right now? What what can they handle? What can they do uh, even with an administration that is uh, essentially um, adverse to the security, to, to securing the border? Look, uh, let me just say that the, the morale of Border Patrol is, is not existent. I've been down there more than a dozen times in the last year and a half. Um, I started my career as a board agent. I talked to hundreds of these men and women. The morale is not existing. They took an oath to enforce the immigration law. They took an oath to be a federal law enforcement officer. And most of them are, are processing people coming across the border who are making a fraudulent claim to asylum. And then they are driven to a bus station or airline or, or, or airport, and they're flown to the city of their choice at taxpayer expense. They feel more like tourist agents, law enforcement officers. And I say fraudulent uh, asylum claims, but people need to understand, the left keeps saying these people have a right to find asylum. They're asylum seekers. Okay, technically they're right. However, if you look at immigration court data over the last decade, nine out of ten people who claim asylum on the southwest border never get relief from the U.S. US courts and they don't qualify. They're simply taking advantage of a loophole that says, you come and say those magic words that you're going to be released to the United States. And if you ever show up in court, the threshold to prove asylum is it's much higher than the original interview on the border, 90% fail. That's not my number. 90% is an actual number. Matter of fact, Syracuse University just did a study. They tracked all these family units the last five years, and they found 93% lost their case and were order removed. So the Border Patrol knows what's going on. They know most people are taking advantage of, of, of loopholes in the system and preventing them from doing the jobs for it, like I said a few minutes ago. These border trains are sitting in these facilities processing people who have no real right to claim for asylum. Meanwhile, there's fentanyl coming across the border. There's, there's, there's uh, convicted criminals coming across the border. Uh, they've arrested people in 170 different countries, and many of these countries are sponsors of terrorism. If someone, if you think not a single one of the 1.2 million gotaways, these are recorded guideways called a camera, drone traffic, and central traffic. It's not a guess. So we got 1.2 million gotaways. you, you, you got to assume that some of them can in this country do us harm. So Border Patrol agents just feel, you know, they feel helpless. They're sitting there processing something that shouldn't be processed, shouldn't have a claim, shouldn't be here. But because of, because of the surge, they got to do it. And meanwhile, they got real national security concerns coming across the border, and they can't do anything about it. Well, what should President Biden do? Enforce the law. I mean, you know, uh, the law is clear. Like on the President Trump, people can hate him and like him, but on President Trump, we get we got rid of 
uh, are catching leaks. And the reason he did that because of the U.S. immigration law that was passed by Congress says this. If you enter the country legally and, and claim asylum, if you're an arriving alien, alien, you are required to be detained until you see a judge and makes a determination. And that's a, that's a strong message to the world that if you've got a valid claim, come come and make your claim. You're going to be sitting in, the, in a residential center about 30 days until a judge hears your case. And if you win your case, you're going to the United States. If you're not, you're going to send back. If you would just do that, or if you would put in place a Remain in Mexico program, Remain in Mexico program said you can claim asylum, but you're going to wait in Mexico until you're hearing. And the reason they did that under the Trump administration, because like I just told you, 9 out of 10 would fail their hearing. It, it, there's, there's what they call a Homeland Security Lifestyle Report that's put out by the department every year. Here's what the Homeland Security Lifestyle Report says. Even though 9 out of 10 will lose your case and get ordered removed, how many actually leave? Well, for instance, if you're a family group, you only leave 6% of the time. Some some groups leave 3% of the time. So the Trump administration understood that. They said, wait a minute, most, most of our fraudulent claims, and they never leave. Why do we keep releasing them? To, 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 that makes you know they're in the wind. Then we find them 10 years later. Now they have two U.S. Two US citizen kids, and they've been ordered removed by a federal judge. So you know, it puts us in a bad spot. So, okay, the judge ordered removed. We have to remove him. Now he has two U.S. citizen kids. He may own a home. It's just that the main Mexico program is a game changer. It helps secure the border. It put the border places back on the line to patrol for dangers, and it just made sense. So in addition to you know those simple policies, uh, simple things that could be done to have an immediate effect that you just mentioned and catch and release, uh, institute, uh, reinstitute, remain in Mexico, um, something else that a president and, admit, and a Congress that were interested in border security could do Oh, would that would that also include uh, resourcing border patrol? Do we have enough border patrol agents? Do they do we have the necessary uh, personnel and tools at the border now for enforcement? Look, I think I think they have enough resources on the Trump administration because this isn't really a resource issue. This is a policy issue. Okay. So when uh, President Trump had illegal immigration down eighty three percent at a forty five year low. With the, with the same resources they have now. So it's really a policy issue. But let me say this. Law enforcement always use more resources. So we, you know, the, 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 big, the big lie out there right now is that most of the fentanyl comes through ports of entries. That is just that, that is a stone-cold lie. The, the fact is most of the fentanyl is seized at a port of entry because every vehicle stopped, every driver's talked to. And depending on his answers or depending on the, the CBP targeting system, which is a database which has a lot of intelligence from different resources, they put that license plate number in the system, that system's going to tell them, this might be one you want a secondary. On top of that, they're interviewing a driver based on his responses to make decisions, should I second to the individual. But every vehicle stopped. So, of course, more fentanyl is going to be found in the port of entries. But when you got 70 80% of agents off the line between the ports of entry, that's where the fentanyl is coming across. That's why there's so many overdose deaths, because agents are off the line. So, of course, more resources could use by the board for more technology. And of, course, and, of course, more agents, because, you know, the more agents have, the more fentanyl they'll, they'll get. But, I, but overall, the overall summary on this is, they had the same resource on Trump administration and decrease immigration, illegal immigration to 45 year, year, year low. So it's just really, really a policy issue. He is Tom Holman, former acting director of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, visiting fellow now at the Heritage Foundation. Tom, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the uh, representatives from the United States Railroad Unions, they met with Peabutt and team because it turns out, oh, here's a surprise. Yes. Uh, that railway workers are getting sick in East Palestine, suffering from migraines and nausea, complaining about the lack of personal protective equipment. But uh, nothing to see here, uh, according to DOT and, and, frankly, Governor DeWine. They don't care hmm. whose lives they destroy. Uh, mm. And uh, then, of course, uh, on Saturday night... About 5 p.m., another Norfolk Southern train traveling from Bellevue, Ohio, to Birmingham, Alabama, derailed near Springfield, Ohio. 28 cars went off the tracks. There was a shelter-in-place order initially, but then Norfolk Southern said that uh, there were a couple of liquid propane and ethanol cars, but none of those derailed, derailed, and the derailment is not expected to have any you know, environmental or health impact on the residents of Springfield, Ohio. Yeah, but they still told about a thousand people nearby to lock in place, stay inside they your homes for overnight for a total of nine hours. Well, they did out of an abundance of caution, oh, yes. my favorite phrase. Uh, and um, then they lifted that order. And of course, why wouldn't you believe Norfolk Southern and the Department of Transportation when it comes to things like this? Oh, well, maybe because you have a memory that goes back long enough to two weeks ago in East Palestine, Ohio. Oh, yeah. And here's the Ohio EPA director. Nothing to see here, Dan. No release of any chemical or any hazardous material to the soil, to the air, to the water. So everything's fine. Well, we got this. maybe that's true. And let's hope that's true. But you can understand why residents and outside observers may be uh, hearing that with a jaundiced ear. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Teresa Mall. She's the assistant editor at Spectator World, and she was on the ground in East Palestine. Teresa, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. So um, your time in East Palestine, tell us what you saw and what you learned from residents and officials alike. Yeah, I wrote this in a piece on The Spectator. It reminded me a lot of the opening days, beginning days of the COVID pandemic, where there's a lot of mixed messaging, uh, there's a lot of fear, a lot of confusion, and a lot of mistrust. Um, You know, people who live in the country live there for a reason. And um, I wrote another piece about how uh, historically, uh, big government has not really been a friend to small towns. You know, we like to be left alone, and um, whenever the government shows up, it's not usually for a good reason, and that's exactly what I, I saw in East Palestine. Um, the people there, especially following the last three years since COVID, um, don't trust the government, you know, more than ever. So what I saw there was uh, just people listening to the media, listening to the government, and taking whatever they say with a grain of salt. And uh, this is a really dangerous thing for our country because um, whenever you know a true emergencies happen like this, people don't trust what the authorities are telling them. 
so uh, so it's a bad it's a bad situation, and those people are afraid about what's going to happen uh, to their town and uh, to their health in the coming years. You know, they they have no idea what the implications could be, and and they don't trust what what the government's telling them. And you mentioned COVID because it's as if they went back to COVID restrictions because high school sports were canceled as a result of this. Right. Yeah. So uh, neighboring schools don't want to come to East Palestine. Um, I traveled around with a couple who live just a couple miles from where the derailment happened, and they've been going, you know, driving 20, 30 minutes to a town farther away from East Palestine, and they feel bad about that. You know, this they grew up there. They This is their, their hometown, but they're afraid to patronize these small businesses, and, um, you know, they, they feel guilty, but what, what are they supposed to do, you know? And, and this town could very well become a ghost town, and the government government doesn't care. They don't care that these people are suffering. Um, yeah. And and so um, f- from your time there, what, what's your sense of, like, how many were staying and how many were going and perhaps going permanently? It was, uh, it was still pretty chaotic whenever I was there. Uh, these people were just looking for answers, and right. a lot of them said, you know, even if I test my water for the next year, I I don't trust it. I don't trust even the sources. If they tell me it's safe, I'm still not going to drink it. I'm not going to let my children, my grandchildren drink it. Um, the ironic, sad thing also is that I guess they just uh, raised their property rates, their home values. They just did a reevaluated that and raised their taxes. And they're saying, you know, can you can you evaluate again? Um, you know, what what are these people going to do? How are they going to sell their property if they want to move? Um, it's just, it's really, it's really sad, and these people need help. Well, that was a that was a question actually. The whole home value issue was a question that was put in at CNN town hall to the CEO of Norfolk Southern, and uh, one woman said straight away, you, you know, you're going to buy our homes at the pre-disaster market value, and and of course you got a middling answer from the CEO. But is there any sense of what kind of relief or compensation may? coming for East Palestine residents, if any? Yeah, the people I spoke to had all these questions, and they hadn't heard anything comforting from Norfolk Southern or from the government, not surprising. Um, at the couple I, I spent the most time with told me what would give them the most comfort is actually, you know, health care um, in the future. They, I guess there's a blood test you can take that um, – can detect very early on signs of cancer and it's expensive not surprisingly but you know if they were able to get something like that yearly taken care of for them you know they they've they deserve that the the, the least that these people can do is provide them that you know a little assurance that you know if this does lead to cancer they made reference to Camp Lejeune um, is something right. I heard a lot from people uh-huh. about. You know, they, you, they didn't discover that till what, 30, 40 years later? Right. And and these people have the same fear. So that's the number one thing they, they were concerned about is their health. After spending time in the area, did you feel sick at all? Did you have any symptoms, any headaches or sore throat or rashes? I did not. Um, I was in a car a lot of the time driving around um, looking at at what had the destruction. Um, I was only there for a handful of hours and I, I didn't feel sick, but it was, you know, two, three weeks after the derailment. Um, and I guess the initial, you know, eight hours is whenever obviously it was the worst and uh, there was no sort of lockdown um, 
they said, the people I spoke to said it was pretty nonchalant um, the morning after and the morning of, and it wasn't until a couple of days later that they kind of uh, put out some warnings to people and, and told them to take precautions. So, you know, but after that, you know, everybody was already exposed. So, What did you make of uh, the Mr. Burns moment with uh, Mike DeWine and the EPA administrator where they were, you know, going door to door doing shots of water to, mm-hmm. to show that it's safe? Uh, is that do you think, <laughs> do you think that uh, assuaged any of the fears that you're describing? Absolutely not. Yeah, I, I talked to people about that, and uh, that that gave them no sort of confidence. You know, what what is that going to prove? Um, it's just it kind of reminded me of Nancy Pelosi. Um, you know, during the height of the lockdown, telling everyone to wear a mask, don't leave your home. You know. Uh, putting out all these these warnings, and then she went and got her hair done, and <laughs> while everyone else was shocked, I was like, "Really? Like, well, why would we believe you? Um, you have no reason to, you know, do it, do as they say, not as we do." And so I just nobody believes that. The yeah, parade. and <laughs> and showing off her stash of chocolate bars in her fifty thousand dollar refrigerator right. to keep her company during <laughs> right. COVID. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. So right, because of course, uh, you know, we didn't expect you know one shot of water was going to make anybody ill, but it's it's long term. As you're talking about, people don't trust uh, the water supply, and they're worried about you know latent manifestation of contamination, and so they're you know we're thinking about what the prospect of buying bottled water for the rest of my life. Well, that's not viable, and so for people who can't move, they're they're really in a tough place. Right. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, just Biden's lack of concern, you know, he he didn't, uh, you know, make these people feel as if he cared about them. Um, it's just these people feel forgotten. And there's a good reason why so many of these people voted for Trump. And, um, you know, they just the, I think this is a really bad move also for for the left and for the Democrats because their whole handling of this and reaction to it just reconfirmed, um, you know, why why so many people who live in these rural areas are do tend to be more conservative and vote Republican. And, and when I'm you sure, look at the bigger yeah. picture, I mean, there have been four derailments in Ohio in less than five months. Mm-hmm. So obviously the Transportation Department isn't doing their job. Or Norfolk Southern or some combination of the two. But, yeah. you know, you can understand residents thinking like, What's the success rate of Norfolk Southern trains going through Ohio? About 50-50 proposition or what? I mean, I'm being facetious, but it's that you can understand a couple of weeks after and one derails last night or over the weekend, I should say. And and there's, you know, unknown, at least for a time in terms of whether or not you've got another uh, contaminated site. uh, People must be throwing up their hands. Right. And I know other people have noted that, noted this, but if this were to happen in, you know, a populated place in California or, you know, near a big city where there's more minorities or, um, you know, somewhere that has a Democratic leadership or a more liberal populace, this would be uh, such a big deal and there'd be emergency help and, um, you know, payouts and things of that nature, I'm sure, immediately. But this, these are country folk. These are conservative. These, these are Republicans. Um, so where, where's the outcry? And this is a feeling I think a lot of rural people have felt for a long time, which is why they are conservative, is that government doesn't care for them. Government doesn't care in general. Um, there's a reason that, you know, these trains go through these rural places, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> they, if, if they spill, if they wreck, you know, whatever, it's just, it's just the countryside. Um, and so this is, I think this is just going to polarize the country even more, the way that 
this has been handled or mishandled, not handled. Well, well, and especially when you have Trump show up, and I'm not saying that he's polarizing. I'm saying that he uh, saw an opportunity to uh, be on site when the president of the United States wasn't. He's a former president. He's entitled, uh, just like Jimmy Carter built homes. He can show up to disaster sites and and pass out water and show concern. He's got standing among that community, and that's what he did. Right, yeah, I was there for that. I was driving into town as people were lined, lined up on the streets with flags, so excited to see him, and, and it did comfort them, you know. He, he can't do much, um, but but just to show his support for them was really exciting, and um, the fact that he was he was thinking of them, and, and um, you know, he, he has such rapport with, with many people, but especially, you know, the people who feel kind of forgotten and and um, overlooked. He made them feel special, and he went to McDonald's, and, you know, he just he has a natural way. Yes. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it was, cute, you know, lifted that. their spirits, I feel like. He is, uh, she is Teresa Mall, that is, assistant editor at Spectator World. Teresa, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you again. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.